All right, let's uh, our Bibles this morning and open up to Revelation. Again, chapter 19, Revelation 19. <clears throat> I don't know how familiar uh, you are with the Islamic Republic of Iran. After the war with Iraq in the 1980s, uh, it was led by Saddam Hussein, old friend, and uh, his attempt to invade Iran. Um, a peace deal was brokered by the United Nations, and several attempts were made at that time to introduce more uh, democracy into the country. Well, this was largely unsuccessful. And in 2005, a much more conservative Muslim came to power, a man named Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And I'm mispronouncing it in Arabic, but that's the Western pronunciation. During his eight years in power, there was a crackdown on democracy. It led to a lot of bloodshed, including an attack on uh, some of the U.S. forces in Iraq, and just a complete disregard for human rights as a whole. His successor tried to introduce some reform uh, eight years later after that, uh, but the most recent president has returned really to uh, a lot of Mahmoud's principles and policies and international relations with Iran continues to be a sore spot uh, in the international uh, community. But when Mahmoud was elected, elected under a very suspicious vote count, uh, the international community was immediately alarmed by some of the things he was saying, including his uh, push for nuclear capabilities and his refusal to recognize Israel as a legitimate state. In light of our message today, I want to point out that this is also a man who waiting for the second coming of a religious figure. He's probably the only leader of any nation in the world who has been bold enough to talk about it publicly. Mahmoud is a Shiite, and according to their teaching, a man by the name of Abdul Hasim Muhammad, who is a 12th descendant from the Prophet Muhammad, disappeared in 941 A.D., but he is going to return at the end of time, and he will lead an era of Islamic justice, which kind of makes you shudder to think about. But Ahmadinejad said, our revolution's main mission is to pave the way for the reappearance of this person referred to as the 12th Imam, the Al-Mahdi. When he was president of Iran, he justified a lot of his ruthless reforms by saying that Iran should become a powerful and developed model of Islamic society in order to pave the way for the return of the al-Mahdi. When Mahmoud was invited to address the United Nations, a good part of his speech uh, was given to talking about the return of al-Mahdi. You think of it on this level, you imagine... Uh, Scott Morrison addressing the United Nations when he was PM and uh, taking up most of his time and his platform talking about Christianity and the need for people to come to the gospel. 
Uh, that's basically what this man did. And when he returned to his own country, uh, he met with some of his religious clerics, and he told them that when he began to speak uh, about the al-Mahdi to the United Nations, he had the feeling in that moment that he was clothed in light for as long as he spoke about this man and his second coming. And then he claimed that all the other delegates immediately sat there in rapt attention, and their eyelids did not blink the whole time he was talking. Uh, in other words, it was a supernatural speech, you know, and Allah was holding their attention. Now, I'm just using that illustration to make the observation that a large portion of the world's population is expecting someone to come from heaven. Uh, Orthodox Jews believe that their Messiah, not Jesus of Nazareth, obviously, uh, but their Messiah will come for the first time. Uh, Christians, the uh, largest religious group in the world with about 2.4 billion claiming that name, uh, so about one-third of the population uh, are expecting the coming of Jesus Christ. And of course, Islam is the second largest religion in the world. There's nearly 2 billion Muslims, and uh, they also agree that a prophet is coming. In fact, some of them even believe that Jesus is uh, that prophet who will return, not as the son of God, of course, but as a true prophet. And then others believe that it will be the return of the 12th descendant of the prophet Muhammad, the al-Mahdi. Well, we've been studying the scripture's claim regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible refers to as the incarnate Word of God. In chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, we have a description of his coming. And in verse 16, when he comes, it says, he will have a name written on his robe, the part of his robe that's draped over his thigh. And it will say, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And that brings us now to verses 17 to 21 and our passage for today. So let's just read it together. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him set on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, do you believe that this prediction will be fulfilled 
literally. Because if you don't, my question for you is, what alternative interpretation can you offer? Uh, you see, the problem is that if you abandon a literal interpretation of prophetic scriptures like this, then you are opening up a Pandora's box of interpretations that are justified by nothing more than the imagination or the forceful delivery of the interpreter. In other words, there's no governor on the interpretation if you just abandon literalness. So with that in mind, I do want to handle this passage literally. And I want to speak to you this morning about the conquering of the nations by the Son of God. There is one who is coming. And if he returned today for his bride, the church, then that would initiate a period of time that is seven years long and include unprecedented divine judgment on this earth, which is designed to pressure all of its people and really instigate the greatest period of evangelistic activity in the history of the world, but also a period that will culminate in this final scene of total victory on the one hand, but total bloodshed on the other. In verses 7 to 18, then, we are told, first of all, that in this day, there will be a summons issued by an angel. And it will be a summons to something that is referred to in the passage as God's Great Supper. Now, there's only two facts that are revealed by that supper and that summons. First, in verse 18, is that the summons will be issued of all things to the birds that fly. They are the diners of this great meal. And our Lord spoke about this in the Olivet Discourse. He specified in Matthew 24, 28, that it would be vultures. And he said that where those vultures gather, there would be the site of his coming. But evidently, based on this passage, the summons will actually be given to all the birds uh, that fly. Secondly, we are told in verse 18 that the purpose for the summons is so that these birds might eat the flesh of Christ's enemies. In other words, all of those birds are going to be carnivorous in that day because their dinner will be the flesh of human beings and even the flesh of their horses. Now, make no mistake, this is shocking language. Uh, just imagine if a Muslim cleric said to his congregation of hundreds, the day is coming when the eagles and the vultures and the hawks and and the kookaburras and uh, uh, the, the magpies, especially the magpies, uh, you know, are going to just pick at and eat all the flesh of Allah's enemies. So rejoice. I mean, you can imagine the outcry if that came up in a news story. Of course, you know, the Muslims preach and teach things that are just as shocking to us. But, you know, my point is that we are so familiar with our Bibles. We've, uh, you know, we've read this passage all of our lives and we forget that some of the language really is quite shocking. Uh, it's outrageous for a, an unbeliever you know, to read this kind of thing for the first time. But there is a purpose for it, because these armies and these leaders have persisted in a relentless hostility towards God. 
The beast has done his utmost to displace God with himself. So in response to their stubborn resistance and their antagonism, uh, God will show his contempt for them by degrading even their corpses. And notice that there's no discrimination. The birds are going to eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men. They're going to eat the flesh of common soldiers on horseback, along with their horses. The flesh of all people, whether it's the general on the field, the private just out of training, the stable hand who takes care of the horses and the machinery. Although I've always wondered this, does a king taste better than a private or a bird? I don't know. We'll never know. Well, verse 19 then, we have a vision of what this vast assemblies of armies will look like just before uh, the Lord deals with them. You can kind of Picture this for yourself, you know, kind of like you're in a helicopter looking down on a huge battlefield here. Verse 19, John sees the beast, or the chief figure involved, the one with this uh, uh, worldwide supremacy at the time. You remember that John calls him the Antichrist in uh, 1 John 2.18. He's the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. In Daniel... He's uh, uh, pictured under the figure of a little horn on the fourth beast in Gentile world history. And then in his prophecy of 77s, he calls him the prince who is to come. In the book of Revelation, he's the beast out of the sea. John sees him. I would think that this guy's pretty visible on the battlefield. And then notice um, it says the kings of the earth. These are the heads of state. I don't know if you remember this, but in uh, chapter 17, we were told that there's going to be 10 of them who uh, particularly throw their weight behind uh, the beast. So perhaps they're in close proximity to the Antichrist himself, although I'm sure that other heads of state will be part of this scene as well. And then finally, you have the armies. This is the largest assembling of military personnel in the history of the world. We know that from other passages, one of them which I want to look at in a moment. But before we move to verses 20 and 21, I do want to raise this question about what is said regarding their purpose in verse 19 when it says that they're gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here's my question. Do you really think that it is their intention to make war against the heavenly figure on a heavenly horse behind whom are this uh, all of the hosts of heaven, this innumerable number of both angelic and, and human beings. Are they actually gathered to take on that kind of impossibly large supernatural army? And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I remember seeing pictures where people try to portray this scene. You know, and they've got tanks firing into the air and, uh, you know, ACAC guns, whatever they call those things, and, and planes are locking their missiles onto Jesus. And, and all of it's just, you just can't get past the heavenly defense shields and this kind of a scene. Well, you know, the answer to that question, I really think is no. And I'm saying that because the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes, even for the second time, uh, it's going to be like a thief in the night. 
going to be unexpected. They're not anticipating a fight uh, with someone on a white horse galloping from heaven with his armies. That isn't why they gathered at Armageddon. Instead, what you have in this verse is what you have in many other scripture passages is really that this is the viewpoint of God about this situation. Uh, that's what you find in Psalm 2. Remember that? Well, we, we, uh, uh, we uh, ask the question rhetorically, well, why do the nations rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? And then it says, well, the kings of the earth and the people are gathered in order to break God's bonds and to cast aside his cords from them. That's divine viewpoint. I mean, if you ask the United Nations why they gather together today, uh, if they gather in order to oppose God, it's part of their constitution. We're here to oppose God. We're here to cast his court. They would never say that. That's not their view at all. In fact, many of them don't even believe God exists. No, if you go back to passages uh, such as Zechariah 14 and Revelation 16, uh, those nations are gathered to do battle against Israel. That's their target. Uh, but it's God's viewpoint that those armies are ultimately assembled at Armageddon in order to make a final assault against the government of God and against his Messiah. Uh, it's kind of like that scene, uh, you know, in Lord of the Rings um, when the fortress at Helm's Deep is about to fall and, uh, and the world of men is uh, under threat and, uh, you know, they ride out for one last glorious stand in death. And then Gandalf appears, you know, on the white horse. And, white horse, and, and uh, behind him are all the hordes of the Rohirrim. And they thunder down the mountain and, and, uh, and destroy the enemy. Well, you know, those orcs had no idea they were going to face thousands of horsemen like that in the last minute. And likewise, uh, the armies of the Antichrist are going to be caught totally by surprise when they look up and see the reserve troops coming uh, from the heavens to rescue God's chosen people. Um, well, what's the outcome of that battle? Look at verses 20 and 21. Here's the conclusion of the conflict that is sketched rather broadly for us. So, just like you had cut the head off a snake, it says, the, then the beast, well, he was first captured, and with him the false prophet. And then the scripture says at the end of the verse that these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. You think about that. <clears throat> this is describing these two people being cast in their living bodies into the final destination for unbelievers. And as far as we know, they're going to be the first two inhabitants in the lake of fire. I say that because we know that when lost people die today, uh, their bodies are buried and their souls go to a place that is called Hades. Uh, this is also a place of torment, but it's not their final destination. Uh, and then these people's bodies will then be raised and reunited with their souls to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, uh, which follows the uh, millennium. The Bible says that whoever is not found written in the Lamb's book of life was then cast into the lake of fire. However, in this case, you have two people whose souls will not be separated from their bodies, but they will be hurled 
uh, in those same living bodies into the lake of fire. If you look at chapter 20, verse 10, after the millennium, it says then that the devil who deceived them, talking about deceiving the nations one last time, was also cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. So he's the third one to go in. And then when he goes, it says that uh, this is where the beast and the false prophet are. Been there for a thousand years by then. And they, that is all three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So a thousand years later, you know, the beast and the false prophet are still there. Uh, and then they're joined by their boss. Uh, you know, that fallen angelic spirit, the one who energized them, gets to go in and, and join them in there. Well, in verse 21, uh, those joint armies are destroyed. It says, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Of course, we saw last time that the scriptures indicate that this is, uh, the sword is uh, his word. It's, it's the breath of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's just a command that he gives or a statement. And he just slays those armies uh, like a giant sword. And then the last line says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, it's amazing when you read the interpretations of commentators who will not accept the literalness of these prophecies for whatever reason. I want to give you just a little sampling of that so you can see what they do. But look at verse 21 again. Here's a guy who says that this is describing the stripping of power from unbelieving people when Jesus died on the cross. Do you see the stripping of power from unbelieving people when Jesus died on the cross in that verse, verse 21? Does it read to you there like it's describing the cross and figuratively describing the loss of power by people who opposed Jesus at his first coming? That's a stretch. Here's another one, completely the opposite. This guy says, verse 21, is actually describing the conversion of those armies in that day. Uh, he says it's describing it in the language of conquest, but actually, you know, it's their conversion. Okay, that's what I mean. All right, you take away a literal interpretation, you pretty much open yourself up to any interpretation that fits your fancy. Well, as horrible as those descriptions are, they are exactly what God has foretold is going to happen. Now, if you question whether there is a God who so loves the world that he would sacrifice his own son in order to obtain the salvation of sinners, but who, on the other hand, is fully prepared to treat rebellious mankind with great contempt, even to degrade their dead bodies. If you question that, then I want to remind you of something that no one who believes the Bible questions. And that is, that this is exactly how he dealt with ancient Israel in the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests, and again under the heel of Rome in AD 70. In fact, those are such established facts of history that even unbelieving historians will accept them. In addition to that, 
what's your explanation for the Holocaust? I mean, are you going to say then, well, that God had nothing to do with that? That's why it was so gruesome. Well, no. History itself testifies to the fact that what God predicts in the Scriptures He will do, and even the severity of the language, is exactly what He has done before. In other words, the past testifies to the validity of a literal interpretation of the future. Keep that in mind. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time is turn to the fullest description of these events uh, in this chapter that are found in the Word of God, and it's in an Old Testament book, a book, I think, that may be filled with mystery to you. Uh, but I want you to know that a lot of mystery really would be solved in your mind if you would just read it more literally. I'm referring now to the book of Ezekiel. I want you to turn to chapters 38 and 39. And I'll have it on the screen, but it actually might be more helpful if you look at it in your Bibles. This is an extensive cross-reference to Revelation 19. And uh, if we went through it thoroughly, it would take uh, several messages. So in order to keep our emphasis in the book of Revelation, I want to skim over these two chapters and just supplement what we've seen so far. Now, let me put this in context for you for just a moment. Chapters 38 and 39 are just about in the middle of the last section of Ezekiel, which begins in chapter 33 and runs all the way to chapter 48. Now, this section points to a future that as of today has not yet taken place. Chapters before that, well, they also have prophecies, but many of them are already fulfilled. Chapters 33 to 48, however, pointing to our future. And basically, they uh, concern two major things. One is the restoration of the nation of Israel to their land. Now, Ezekiel was writing during the Babylonian captivity, and God was saying to him, I'm going to restore my people to that land. When you read all the descriptions of the restoration, if you take them literally, it's apparent that this isn't the restoration that took place right after the Babylonian captivity. This is a restoration that hadn't happened yet at the time Jesus was born. Then from chapter 40 to the end of the book, you have a description of the return of God's glory to a rebuilt temple. And I've referenced this passage before, but it's clear that the descriptions and dimensions of this temple indicate that it has not yet been built. There's nothing in history like the one described here. So this is yet in the future, if you take it literally. In uh, chapters 10 and 11, you remember Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory of God leaving the Solomonic temple. Uh, the glory has departed. Ichabod is the turn. But in chapter 43, he sees God's glory returned to the temple. And yet this is a, a temple uh, that has yet to be constructed. However, before the restoration of that glory, you have the events in chapters 38 and 39, and that's what we're looking at now. So I want to read the first nine verses of chapter 38, 
And I think uh, that little bit of context will help to orient you to this passage. We'll start with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will return you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Pagama from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. <coughs> After many days you will be visited. In the latter days you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So people brought out of the nations now living securely. And then it says, You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Now, what is obviously being described here is an immense army invading the land of Israel at some point in history, and you actually have the nations that are named as part of this alliance. Now, but the big question is this, when does this invasion take place? When does this happen? Well, when you read what is described in these chapters, it's apparent that there's never been anything like this in history, nothing comes even close to the descriptions of what's going on here. So, if this is going to be taken literally, then when in the future is it going to happen? Let me give you some suggestions. All right? Number one, some interpreters place this invasion before the tribulation, right toward the beginning of the seven years. All right, let me show you why. Look at verses 10 to 13. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land, and, and note these descriptions here. Un, uh, you've got unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Edan, the merchants of Tashish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold? take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder. Now, 
he who have a description then of Israel at some time in the future, and the state of her people is that they feel secure, right? They, they are at rest, uh, so much so that they've actually demilitarized. I mean, uh, uh, there seems to be no effort at all to keep up their defenses. It says they dwell without walls or bars or gates. And it's because of that that some interpreters say, well, this couldn't be a description of Israel during the tribulation, so it must be a description of Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. So this battle of Ezekiel 38 is really Gog invading the land before the tribulation, and the result of that invasion is that he is going to sign a covenant of seven years with the nation of Israel. In other words, he is going to uh, coerce them by invading their land, as it's described right here. If you want to think of a parallel to that, uh, think of the invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, right? Putin is trying to push them into an agreement that it really belongs to Russia. That's his agreement. And systematically, he's destroying the country in an effort to squeeze them into compliance. <coughs> it's the same tactic with Gog, if you take this interpretation. But here's the second possibility, and that is that it actually occurs sometime during the tribulation. You have a, uh, a Criswell study Bible. He takes that uh, interpretation. If you read J. Dwight Pentecost, he takes that position. Uh, these and other good interpreters say that this will probably occur at the midpoint of the tribulation because uh, it appears that for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Israel is at peace. The man of sin has made his covenant with her. and She's at rest. And so what you're looking at now is the invasion that breaks that peace. It's at the end of that period. And that ushers in then the last half of the tribulation. A third possibility is to place this invasion after not only the tribulation, but also the millennium. Here's why. Go to Revelation 20 for a moment. It says in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, that's a thousand years after chapter 19, <laughs> Satan, who's been bound by a chain in the abyss all that time, will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth. And look at this. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to do battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So clearly you have here uh, the description of an invasion, and uh, you have to remember that the book of Revelation does describe two future invasions of the land of Israel. The first one eventuates in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the armies in Armageddon, chapter 19. After the millennium, there's another one. And the thing that causes many to think that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is describing the second one is because they use the words Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, verse 8. So there is a third possibility for you. The fourth possibility, and this one is closely related to number three, and this is the one I think 
is, is, is most in line with all the facts of the chapters that we're looking at. And that is that the invasion of chapter 38 and 39 is not before the tribulation. It's not after the millennium. But it's an invasion that begins at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then, <coughs> and then it finally climaxes in the great supper of God in Revelation 19, also known as Armageddon. In other words, it's an invasion that the man of sin himself leads in order to set up uh, in the temple uh, the abomination of desolation, set himself up like that, as 2 Thessalonians 2 describes. And then that touches off 42 months of terrific warfare in the land of Israel that doesn't end until Jesus comes <coughs> at the Battle of Armageddon. I think this fits with the prophecies in the book of Zechariah, which we don't have time to read, uh, but we have looked at extensively in the past, uh, which tells us a little about what will happen just before Jesus' second coming. Uh, do you remember, for example, in Zechariah 13, that two-thirds of the nation Israel will be killed in uh, the wars before Jesus' return? Then in chapter 14, we are told that finally Jerusalem itself is going to be taken. And half of those people are going to go into captivity. Now, what you have to remember is that during those 42 months, you've also got uh, two witnesses, God's witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. Remember that? A long time ago. These two witnesses have the ability to cast flames at their enemies. No one can overcome them until the end of those three and a half years. At that point, they're killed. And their bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem. And God resurrects them. So during those 42 months when the man of sin is, is trying to completely conquer that nation, he's trying to take that city, uh, he's opposed by these two witnesses in Jerusalem. And on top of that, you remember Zechariah 12 says that God is going to give his chosen people supernatural ability to withstand their enemies. It says there that even the weakest will fight in that day like ancient David did. Uh, so there's this tiny little nation, and here are these people, and here are the armies of the Antichrist, and this little nation is putting up a stiff opposition. But in the end, Jerusalem is taken, as Zechariah predicts, and it looks like you're going to have this final assault, this ultimate victory for the Antichrist. It's almost you know another situation like the one they had at Masada. And the Jews held out against Rome until the end, and, and they all committed suicide. But instead of a tragic loss like that, the clouds open up. And here's the Lord of glory. And he returns, and he deals with these armies, just like Revelation 19 describes. I believe that what you're reading in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is an invasion that begins at the midpoint and then continues in its effort to totally conquer those people, probably to exterminate them, like in the Holocaust. And it's going to continue right through for three and a half years of war, uh, much like World War II continued for six years in Hitler's attempt to eliminate the Jews. Now, I've made my proposition. Let me try to prove it to you. I want to show you because 
uh, when we get to the end of these chapters, I think you'll see where there really is this strong connection as a cross-reference to Revelation 19. But let's go back to chapter 38. <clears throat> I want to start back in verse 2. And as we go, I want to outline the chapter and, uh, and identify uh, some of the people and the nations who are going to be part of this war. All right? So first of all, <clears throat> there is a figure who is referred to as Gog. Now, that is the name of someone. Up up here. Thank you. There's only one other time in the Old Testament where the word Gog is used of a person. And it's back in 1 Chronicles 5.4, and it refers to a descendant of Reuben, whose name was Gog. So uh, he's going to be from the land of uh, Magog. So uh, you've got this guy named Gog. He's named once one other time in the Old Testament. In the future, there'll be another man named Gog, and he'll be from this land of Magog. Now, Magog, in Genesis 10, was actually the second son of Japheth. Japheth, of course, was one of the sons of Noah, who came out of the ark. And Genesis 10 describes how 70 people groups descended from these guys. So Japheth had sons, and his second son, he named him Magog. So this is an ancient name, and those people from Magog settled somewhere. Uh, well, in the future, there will be an individual who is referred to as Gog. And he'll be from the historic land that was settled by the descendants of Japheth. And many people think that that is the area around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea <coughs> uh, settled by uh, these descendants. And then notice that it says Gog was the prince of Rosh. We need to spend just a moment with that. Uh, the name Rosh means head. Uh, an alternative translation to that would be chief. So it's saying that Gog is the chief prince of Meshach, which is the next uh, region of the world that's named in the passage. That is a possible translation. Now, my translation, it does say Prince of Rosh, uh, as if Rosh is just another part of the world. So either one is possible, and we'll probably have to wait until it all happens to figure out that debate. But I do want to quickly point out that the word, the word Rosh is not in any way related to the word Russia. Uh, for many years, people made the connection because the word sounds similar. If someone sat around and said, Russia, Rosh. Russia, gotta be Russia. Okay, that's pretty much how it happened. And uh, in you know in the Cold War days, the Beast must have been Mikhail Gorbachev. And the mark of the Beast was that red thing on his head. Uh, yeah, those in the 80s remember that. <laughs> and uh, you know we said that uh, uh, you know the, the end of the world was coming back there in the 80s. Well, and I, I remember this, and maybe Pastor Brian does that someone actually came out with a mathematical equation that uh, Gorbachev added up to, guess what number? Like six, right. Very complicated uh, mathematical equation because it had to add up to six. Well, there's, no, there's absolutely no linguistic connection between the ancient word Rosh, meaning chief or head, and our word Russia today. Uh, now, it's the same situation with the next term, Meshach. 
the same people who saw Russia as Rosh identified Meshach as Moscow. And again, it's because the words sound similar. Meshach, Moscow. They don't sound that similar, but to some people they do. Uh, but there's no linguistic connection at all. It's just a couple of zealous interpreters uh, looking for modern connections. Nevertheless, Meshach and Tubal are areas of the world that are generally identified as having some reference to modern-day Turkey, and yes, to parts of Russia. In fact, both Ukraine and Russia border part of the Black Sea. But now, if you look at verse 5, you also have some nations that are very easily identified. Look, there's Persia. That's ancient Iran, interestingly enough. There's Ethiopia in the continent of Africa. still has the same name today. There's Libya, Muslim nations. There's Gomer, that's modern-day Armenia. The house of Tagarma seems to refer to that part of the world uh, that we call Turkey today. But regardless of the exact location of some of these places, I think it's amazing that we have a prophecy here written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And now, uh, nearly uh, 2,500 years later, some of these nations have the same name. And they're going to be part uh, of an invasion into Israel in the future, uh, including ancient Persia, Iran, uh, ancient Ethiopia, ancient Libya, the ancient area around Turkey and the Caspian Sea, up into what is modern-day Russia. And uh, to some degree, they will all be involved in this. And they will be led by someone named Gog. Not Gorbachev, Gog. Now, if Ezekiel 38 and 39 are describing the same invasion uh, that is referred to in Revelation 16, which we'll look at in a moment, culminating in Revelation 19, which we just saw, then who is Gog? If he's the leader of the coalition, this must be, I think, another term for the man of sin or the Antichrist. That is a Bible interpretation. Now look at verse 9, because when they go up to invade Israel, uh, it says there that they will come like a storm and a cloud. And these are obviously figures of speech that indicate they're going to cover the land with their numbers. And when is that invasion going to take place or uh, going to begin? Well, verses 10 to 14, it says when the land is at rest. And the people are defenseless. And again, that seems to fit well with the whole state of Israel in the first half of the tribulation because they've just made a covenant with the Antichrist. Now, after that invasion, but before God deals with this vast army at the last great supper of Armageddon, which is described in chapter 39, you may recall from previous studies that God is already dealing with these armies. So let's read about that now in verses 15 to 23, and we'll also go back to Revelation 16. Verse 15 says, Then you, that is Gog, you will come from your place out of the far north. Uh, and again, that's uh, one reason why interpreters identify some of those nations to the north of Israel, like Turkey and Armenia and Russia. You come from there, you and many peoples with you, 
all of them riding on horses, a great company, and a mighty army. Let's hit the pause button for just a moment. Take a drink for one second. What is this business of all of them riding on horses? Uh, you know, I think we've got to do something with this because this is a problem when interpreting prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And this is one reason why people turn away from a literal interpretation. Because here we are in the 21st century, you know, with uh, F-18s. So are these horses or not? Uh, Who uses horses today for modern warfare? Maybe the New York City policemen. That's about it. (laughs) Well, here's one possible explanation, right? Maybe God is describing future modern warfare in ancient terms that were at the disposal of the riders rather than the Spirit of God, you know, breathing out words like tank or howitzer or uh, bazooka, Apache helicopter. They would know what that is. They know nothing about that. Now, of course, God could have done that. Right? That is a viable interpretation. Uh, but instead of doing that, the Spirit of God breathed out the prediction of warfare in terms that these people, and really all people of history, uh, would be familiar with. That's a possibility. And many good conservatives assume that this is the case. What's the only other possibility? Well, maybe it does refer to literal horses. Uh, maybe that's Uh, what it is after all. Now, later on, uh, we're going to read about shields. We're going to read about spears. We're going to read about burning shields and spears. So the question then is, if this is literal, how do you explain that? Uh, Well, the only other explanation is that something is going to happen in world events that is really going to create a need for people resorting to the weapons of the past and transportation of the past. So I really just want to throw this out for your consideration, lest you think I'm offering a juvenile solution to this. I mean, what would happen in the world today where everything is interconnected? What would happen if there was a major global event? Now, pretty recent examples of that. Think of the chaos that erupted in this global supply chain from COVID. We've all seen the pictures of thousands and thousands of ships that can't come to port, right? What about the lack of one chemical, AdBlue, and the threat it brought to the entire trucking industry? What happened in South Australia when the solar batteries failed? What did they resort to? Candles. What happened to the food industry when the floods came and wiped out the crops? What would be the state of the meat and dairy industry if foot and mouth disease hits our farms and our ranches? Millions of cattle will be slaughtered if it comes to Australia. In other words, I think we just need to stop and ask ourselves, what will be the state of the world after the events in the first months and years of the tribulation? What will be the state of global industry? You think again of seal judgments, 
of the trumpet judgments, of the cataclysmic, horrendous, unprecedented nature of the disasters that are going to strike the whole globe. Remember, for example, the fires that are going to burn up a vast portion of trees and grass in the world. Well, what does that do to the farming industry? How does that contaminate uh, or that contamination of uh, fresh water and air, how does that affect power grids and, and farming and the mass conversion of green energy that we're all doing right now? Uh, we also studied passages that talk about huge percentages of the world's population that are killed by plagues, by the judgments of God. Well, what's going to be the state of industry when there's no one to work in the factories? What's going to happen to the retail industry? Uh, what about the shipping industry when a third of the seas turn to blood? What about the world's thirst for fuel when there's no one to refine it? What about the whole industry of war when there's no steel for the steel factories? There's no computer chips to run complex machinery, which is currently the case. It's a huge microchip shortage in the world. That's why there's a car shortage. Uh, that's why it's so expensive, technology. That's why orders are backed up for months, because you can't get microchips, which process so much of what we do. In other words, all I'm saying is we, we can't interpret this in light of the world as it is today, because it'll be vastly different by the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, all I'm saying is that no one needs to be embarrassed about holding to the position that when this invasion takes place at the midpoint to the end of the tribulation, that military people will have to resort again to hand-to-hand -hand combat and transportation like it was barely a hundred years ago in this country. That is a possibility. I'm just throwing that out for you. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days. Notice it's never happened yet. Latter days. That I will bring you against my land. And again, who does that tell us who is behind it? It's God, right? Remember the beginning of verse 38. I'm going to put a hook in this guy's jaw and pull him in that direction. So, so that the nations may know me. When I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Now here's how God is going to deal with them initially. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy, and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Now watch this. Surely in that day, there shall be a great earthquake. Where? In the land of Israel. Earthquake in Israel. That's interesting. Come back to that. How great will it be? Next verse. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the fields, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. What's the state of the world after that happens? Now, 
<clears throat> go back to Revelation 16. Because uh, there's some additional information about what's going to happen here. Uh, read from verse 12. And remember, these are the events that prepare for Armageddon. This is preparation for the great supper of God. Look at this. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl, the bowl of judgment, on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And that refers to uh, nations that are on the east of Israel, like Iran, who is east of the Euphrates. The river is dried up, right? There's no natural barrier. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, the antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, he's coming like a thief. In verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So that's describing the beginning of the last invasion. River dries up, kings of the east come. God employs these demonic spirits to gather the nations that are coming to Armageddon. But before the Son of God comes and deals with them, you're going to have the seventh angel. Verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great what? Earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake that had not occurred since men were on the earth. Well, we just read Ezekiel 38 of an earthquake that was going to shake the whole earth. I told you we'd come back to this. Verse 19, now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, about 45 kilograms. Imagine a hailstone that big. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Flip back to Ezekiel 38. Look at verse 19. Surely in that day there'll be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all creeping things creep on the earth. All men on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. Deep places shall fall. Every wall is going to fall to the ground. Keep reading. Verse 21. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So at this point, you've got some kind of internal conflict among the armies. There's a civil war going on. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, on the many people who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, we just read in Revelation, each one weighed about 45 kilos. Fire and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, that appears to be what we read about in Revelation 16 is going to happen when you have that invasion and this complete attempt to exterminate Israel. 
to conquer their city. But instead of overcoming them, God is going to empower his people. There's going to be this fierce resistance. And although two-thirds of their population will be killed, Jerusalem is going to be captured. Those armies will assemble in the valley of Armageddon at some point in those 42 months. And they're going to be affected by God when he shakes the world with this tremendous earthquake. And there's going to be some kind of internal conflict, this uh, civil war among those armies. And the hailstones are going to fall out of heaven. And all of that's going to precede what we read in Revelation 19, which is coming. Chapter 39, we're almost done. When the Son of God returns and destroys them, we're going to read from verse 3, uh, and this is addressed now to his enemies. When he comes, then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Jump to verse 17. And as for you, son of man, says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Tell them this, assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full, drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war says the Lord God. In Revelation 19, he calls it the Great Supper. In verse 17, it's my sacrificial meal. In verse 20, it's my table. I think it's all the same thing. And then look back at verses 9 to 16. You have here an amazing description uh, of what uh, is going to be involved for those people who survive. Uh, you remember, the Lord is going to return. Uh, all of Israel is going to see him whom they pierced, and they're going to mourn. A fountain of cleansing will be opened, and of course the millennium is coming after that. But there's preparations that have to be made, right? It includes uh, the judgment of all the Gentile nations in Matthew 25. But some of those people who are left alive after the tribulation are going to go into the millennium, and evidently, during that period, and maybe even leading into the millennium years, this is what's going to happen. Look at verse 9. Look at the aftermath of the war. <clears throat> then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shield and bucklers, bows and arrows, javelins and spears. They will make fires with them for seven years. Of course, that's one of the references that makes people think it happens at the beginning of the tribulation. Because you've got seven years. But there's, you know, there's no uh, really necessary connection between those seven years and uh, this seven years. Verse 10, they will not take wood from the field or cut down any from the forests because they'll make fires with their weapons. 
And they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. It will come to pass in that day I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel. This is the burial place. The valley of those who passed by east of the sea. If that's the Mediterranean, to be right to the east of that, uh, close to Armageddon. Therefore, uh, and it will obstruct travelers because they will, there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the Valley of Haman Gog, or the Hordes of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Now, if that seems impossible to you, then again, you want to think about there being millions of people to bury. And also the possibility of there not being any modern equipment. And again, I want to stress that at the end of the world, the tribulation is going to be nothing like the world that we are living in today. So I think you want to forget about bulldozers, right? You want to, you, you want to be thinking more about hand-dug graves, mass graves. Take seven months to bury the millions. Uh, I mean, you know, the birds eat the flesh and drink the blood, but then you've got these skeletons, you've got partially consumed bodies remaining. And in verse 13, indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God, that they will do this. And uh, then you've got verses that talk about, you know, they go through the land searching for the lost traces of bones. And when they find it, they set up a marker until it's finally buried. And, and this is all the aftermath of Armageddon. Now, I want to conclude by reminding us of why God is going to do all of this. Look at verse 20 and following. The consequences God intends are these. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. That's never been done before. For the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. In other words, in that day, it's going to become apparent to people like the president of Iran that the reason this nation was cut out of their land for all of those centuries was because there is a true and a living God, and His name is Yahweh. And He removed His people because of their iniquity. And then He brought them back just like He promised and vindicated His Son, whom they rejected. He pressured them until they mourned over Him whom they had pierced. But God glorified himself in the midst of all those nations in that way. And now they will all understand it. You know, this president of Iran who left office about nine years ago shocked the world after his election by saying this. He said, Israel needs to be wiped off the map. He met with the heads of Muslim nations at Mecca. Together they all denied that the Holocaust ever took place. Uh, this has been propaganda ever since the Second World War from people who strongly oppose those people having that land. 
Because in their view, the Holocaust was just a trumped-up justification for giving them pity, giving them that land, uh, you know, back in 1948. So Ahmadinejad denied that the Holocaust took place. And then he said this, if you really think it took place, Germany, Austria, he named all these nations, he said, if it isn't just a lie you fabricated to get these people out of Europe, then what you need to do is accept the blame for it and section off provinces in your nations and replant Israel there. And then he said, Israel is a tumor that needs to be replanted in Europe among those nations that propagated the Holocaust if it really occurred. And then he said, we in Iran, we would support that. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the issue is the land. The issue isn't just whether or not there's a nation, but it's about the land they occupy. It's about that city, and especially that mount on top of that city. That is the issue. Now, countries like Iran are absolutely bent on obtaining nuclear capability. They're outspoken about it. This is not a secret to the international community. And no one really knows if they do at this point. But in 2018, a group of American officials, including uh, the ex-CIA director, stated they probably already have the atomic bomb. If they do, they would be the second Muslim state with a weapon like that. Pakistan uh, already has one. And both of those nations are bent on wiping that nation off the map. Now, we don't know how close we are to the events that we're studying in the book of Revelation, but it does appear, in my opinion, that God is doing something among the nations in preparation for the final days. And one day there will be a president of Iran and another leader in Libya and someone leading Ethiopia some kind of great crisis in the Middle East that will justify all the nations of the world turning their attention to that land of Israel. But those Zionist Jews who want a rebuilt temple, they're going to get it at some point, and they're going to worship there again, and everybody's going to say, peace and safety, look at what the Antichrist, they would call him Antichrist, but look at what he's done for us, this great leader, peace in our time. And then the Bible says, sudden destruction. And it's day of the Lord. It'll be just like the book of Revelation unfolds to us. Chapter after chapter, seven years in duration. And in the first three and a half years, you've got this, the Antichrist as a protector of that nation. But in the midst of those seven years, he's going to set himself up as an abomination in the rebuilt temple. And then you're going to have three and a half years of terrible atrocities in the land of Israel. And the invasion of that country. God will supernaturally protect them. And he's going to shake the world with this earthquake that we read about. And then finally, at the end, the Son of Man is going to come. And he's going to destroy those, those armies. And he's going to take the beast and the false prophet by the scruff of their neck and cast them into the lake of fire. And God is going to do so, just as he said, in order that all the nations will see his judgments. And he will get glory in their midst. And all of them will finally acknowledge that this land is the land 
to those people to whom he promised it back in Genesis 12, the descendants of Abraham. After the president of Iran made his comments, one of the cabinet members in Israel said this, this man needs to understand that our descendants were in this land thousands of years ago, and we lay claim to it. When God gets done, it'll be that claim that gets justified. Not because those people are worthy, but because God made a promise. He keeps his promises. All of them. Now, Father, we thank you for these passages that seem so cryptic to us because they are yet to happen, but yet are so clear in some ways. And what is so clear to us is that you are in this for your glory, that you want to magnify yourself through what will happen. Now, Father, help us to do that now as your people on this earth. And help us to do so by honoring your word and what it says and by believing what it says. We thank you for these truths. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.